Good morning. Uh, my name is Jason, and I lead one of the adult uh, Bible classes here at FBC. And today we're reading scripture from Psalms 136, 1 through 9, um, which will be up there. But I'm going to have you stand with me because we are going to do this together. Today's reading is going to be responsive. I'll read the first line of each verse, and then we will all read together out loud the response. Psalm 136, 1 through 9. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. To him who by understanding made the heavens. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. To him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and stars to rule over the night. For his steadfast love endures forever. Thank you. You may be seated. Morning. You can't hear me? Lucky you. <laughs> Psalm 136. Some of you who get the weekly FBC It Connect, a lot of times we do those videos um, based on this passage coming up, and that uh, video this week was in Psalm, I think it was 89. Well, I changed it. Uh, so we're in Psalm 136. And he said, well, you can't do that. <laughs> I did. So we're in Psalm 136. Let me begin with prayer. God, we are grateful for your word. And our prayer is this morning uh, that in this Psalm, Psalm 136, you would fill our hearts with the joy and privilege it is to know you as God, as Savior, as King, and that we will reflect fondly on what you have done in the past for us, what you're doing in our lives today, and what you're going to do in our future. God, that you might build up our faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and you would make us more like him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Trust is something uh, that we build up over time sometimes, and it can become, become hard to trust people that have betrayed our trust. And one person in particular that often bet betrays our trust is dad, because he doesn't tell us what's true. So, uh, you, and you might have had a dad who was like this. He would tell you things, and you would discover only later that he was, that he was lying to you. One of my favorite dads in this regard is Calvin's dad in the popular comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes. Dad, how come old photographs are always in black and white, Calvin asked his dad. Didn't have color film. And his dad, of course, responds, holding his cup of coffee calmly. Oh, they had color film. It's just back then the world was in black and white. <laughs> the world didn't become colorized until the mid-30s, and even then it was pretty grainy. And he, Calvin, thinking about it, he said, but what about paintings? Painters painted in color. And the dad says, 
uh, no, those also turned color in the 1930s, and it was it was it was pretty grainy back then. Even he said, but then why didn't the pictures, the photographs turn color? He said, no, because they already are color. They're color pictures of black and white, and. <laughs> Calvin's response is, the world is harder to understand than I thought. My favorite one of these, I've mentioned it before, I'm going to mention it again, is they're driving over a bridge. Calvin says to his dad, how do they know the weight limit of the bridge? And his dad said, well, they drive heavier and heavier trucks over the bridge until it collapses. They weigh the last truck and then rebuild the bridge. And that's how they know how heavy things can go over the bridge. Are. Of course, the mom replies, if you don't know how they did it, just say, I don't know. Dads, that's not an option, is it? That's Okay, my favorite one. Dad, how do people make babies? And the dad replies, well, most people go to Sears and they get a kit and they put them together. And Calvin responds, I came from Sears. And, and his dad kneels down next to him and puts a armor on him. He goes, no, no, not at all. You came from Kmart. <laughs> we got you on special as a blue light special. Now, if you know what a blue light special is, you are old as me or older. <laughs> Calvin starts crying, and the mom from the other room says, of course, what are you telling Calvin now? So uh, over the course of time, you learn not to trust, because what they're saying and what they're doing isn't, isn't true. And so the question is, can we trust God? Can we trust God? And if we can trust God, how can we know we can have trust in God? And what I want us to do as we think about how do we trust God is we should recognize we can trust God in the way that his word calls us to trust him. And it's to look back at what he has done and what he has said and simply say, it has what he has done in the past and what he has said in the past been trustworthy? Now, if Calvin looked back on his past with his dad, he would say, no, he hasn't been. But what this psalm is going to do for us is he's going to allow us to look back into the past. What has God been doing and what has God been saying in the past? And has it been trustworthy? And if it has been, we then can have our faith built up in the Lord. And that's what we're going to see in Psalm 136 is we can trust God. And the first part of this is by looking back at what God has done and saying, we can trust God because we can remember what God has done. Look at the first three verses of Psalm 136. He tells us the aim of the psalm here. He wants us to give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Now, we might say this to a very young child if he is given a gift from his grandparent or a neighbor. We might tell the young child, go tell grandma thank you. And that's an important thing to do, to teach children to express gratitude. But we also know at a certain point in our life, if you have to be told to be thankful, you aren't. That gratitude is something that comes from an experience of feeling gratitude. And so what the psalmist is going to do for us, he say, I want you to be thankful for God. I want you to be thankful to God. And now I'm going to explain where that gratitude should come from. So let's look at the next couple of verses. He gives us the basis for this. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Verse 2, give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Now what he's going to do here, he's going to help us think about what God has been doing from the beginning of time, especially 
In the Old Testament, as recorded by Moses in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And what he's going to show for us in Psalm 136 is the point of Old Testament history. One of the main points of the Old Testament for us is to show us how much God loves his people. And he's going to show how much he loves his people by creating his people, saving his people, and establishing his people. And so this is how God shows his love for us. He's going to, I'm going to create, I'm going to save, and I'm going to establish you. And he, he starts in the very beginning by saying, give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. This means God who is God. Because back in the Old Testament, how many gods were there? There was one. But how many gods did people worship? As many as you can think of. They worship gods of suns and moons and stars and rivers and fish and animals and animals they made up and, and animals they didn't make up. And they worship gods that would provide them grain and they would worship gods that would provide them children and they would worship gods that could provide them not rain and gods who would provide them less children. They worshiped anything that they might be afraid of. They would worship a God that was in charge of that. And everything they might want, they would worship a God that was in charge of that. And anything they didn't want, they would worship a God in charge of that. And the psalm says there is one true God. He is the God of gods. He is not saying there are other gods. He's saying there's one God. And he is God that we should be thankful to because he creates, because he saves, and he establishes his people. Look at how he explains this in verses 4 through 9 as he talks about creation. Him alone, verse 4, to him alone who does great wonders. Verse 5, to him alone who made the heavens, who spread out the earth above the waters, who made the great lights. Verse 8, who made the sun to rule over the day. And verse 9, the moon to rule over the stars. God is the creator. The first several chapters of Genesis, God has created the universe. I don't want to ruin your Bible for you, but here we go. Why does Genesis tell us that God created the world at the beginning? Why is that information in there? Because remember, who did God use to record the information we have in the Pentateuch? Moses. When did Moses write all this down? This was history, people knew, but Moses took the time by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to record for us Genesis through Deuteronomy, to write them down. When did this happen? Was Moses there when the world was created? The guy was old, but not that old. He does all of this after they have left Egypt, after the Red Sea, after the wilderness wanderings. So when Moses is telling us God created, he has in mind everything that God did in where? Egypt. So what did God do to the Egyptians? Do you remember some of the plagues? He sent some big old hail, sent some weather. He turned their Nile into blood. He turned his staff into a snake that ate their snakes. He made a bunch of frogs. He made a bunch of gnats. He made a bunch of locusts. Now already mentioned the hail. So he created all of these plagues that came were intended to communicate to the Egyptians your gods that you worship, the God of the Nile, the God of the sun, the God of the rain, the God of the weather, the God of your grain, the God of your frogs. All of the gods that you worship are what? Lame. And the reason they're lame is there is one God and that one true God created all that is. Now, how do the people of Israel know that God created all there is? 
Because they've read Genesis. Because Genesis tells us about God creating the world, not to tell us how the world was made, but what? Who made the world? And it wasn't the God of the Nile. It wasn't a frog God. It wasn't a sun God. It wasn't a moon God. It wasn't a star God. It was the one true God who made all things. And the God who creates, he is the God we should give thanks to. And then when Israel is in Egypt and all the plagues are hitting Egypt, all God is doing by his power is showing all the Egyptians, you do not worship the one true God, the God who created. You want the Nile to fertilize your fields, but the Nile is not fertilizing your fields. Who is? The one true God is. You want the God of rain to give rain for your grain, but there is no God of rain doing that. Who is God? The, the one true God who created the sun and the moon and the stars. So God is creator, is creator to the exclusion of all other false gods. Creation shows us about God. The sun tells us something about God. The sun is not God. There is no God other than one true God, and there is no God who creates other than God. So we can trust God because we can remember what he has done. He has created. He has created all that there is. Look at verses 10 through 15. Not only do we, are we thankful to God because he creates, we are thankful to God because he saves. Remember, the Egyptians had the people of Israel captive for 400 years. We know this because this is what the Bible records, but it was also something that was prophesied. God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 that his children would be held captive for 400 years in a foreign country, and this happened in Egypt. But God redeemed his people, saved his people out of slavery in Egypt to become the people of God. Verse 10, give thanks to the Lord of gods. And why? Verse 10, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, to him who brought Israel out from among them. Verse 12, to him who with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, to him who divided the Red Sea in two, to him who made Israel pass through the midst of the Red Sea, and to him who overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. So God is to be thanked and trusted because he created all that is. And the next thing is because he redeemed and saved his people from slavery. God is Savior. He redeems his people from the land of Egypt. And how did he redeem his people from the land of Egypt? Through the Passover. God saved his people by allowing them to avoid the judgment of the angel of death by giving to them the means of avoiding judgment. And the way they avoided judgment was to trust God and to express that faith by painting their doorframe in the house with blood from a lamb. So God says, I will save you when you trust me and the manner in which I will redeem you out of Egypt. So they trust God and they paint their door frames with the blood of the lamb. And nobody who did that had anybody die in their house. And all the Egyptians, though, didn't do that. And each of those Egyptians had, their, had someone die in their house. Their oldest born was die, was, would die that night. Then God draws them out of Egypt by the Passover lamb and saves them by passing through the Red Sea. And the New Testament tells us that that's somewhat akin to baptism, that God, they, he redeemed them out of the land of Egypt, and now having passed through the Red Sea into wilderness, 
They are his people. Having been identified as the people of God, having been saved from Egypt and passing through the Red Sea. So all of those who were called out of Egypt by the power of God were saved from slavery. And now they were the people of God. And that's what this psalm calls the people of Israel to do, is thank the Lord. Why? Because you were saved out of slavery. By whose hand? God alone. By whose plan? God's plan. Who would have this plan? If you had hatched a plan to save the people of Israel out of Egypt, would it have involved painting doors? So I got a plan, guys. Let's paint our doors with blood. What? What are you talking about? But this was God's plan. And the reason was he wanted his people to recognize a couple of things. Number one, they could not save themselves. It was only the power of God. Secondly, to be saved required sacrifice. And so they were saved because there was sacrifice and they trusted God. They were redeemed out of Israel into the wilderness. But they were the people of God. So we can trust God because he is creator. He created all that there is. We can trust God because he saves. He redeems his people out of the promised land or out of Egypt and into the wilderness. He saves all of them out of slavery for any who would trust him. God creates, God saves, and he establishes his people. Let's look at verses 16 through 22, if you don't mind. If you notice, I'm just reading the first half of each verse. I'm trying to be nice. I want to get done as close to on time as, as possible. You're welcome. To him who led his people through the wilderness, give thanks to him who struck down great kings and God who killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. So we can trust God because God created all that there is. And we can trust God because he saves, he redeems his people out of slavery by the Passover through the Red Sea. And finally, we can trust God because he has conquered his enemies and established his people. All the enemies of God's people are defeated. And we pay might have to pay attention to these enemies that God lists here in Psalm 136. These are not enemies they faced after they were in the promised land. These are enemies they faced before they got there. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, were mighty kingdoms that the people of Israel, by God's strength, conquered before they entered the promised land. These were the lands east of the Jordan River. And, and the people of Israel were able to conquer these lands. These are mighty kingdoms with fortress cities. So think about this from a military standpoint. You have one group of people which essentially have been on a 40-year church camp out. So that's not scary. You know, they've got their animals and they got their children and they got their marshmallow sticks and they got their Coleman canopies and all their other things. And they're basically walking around the wilderness. And then you have over here a country that's been, been around for hundreds of years that has cities that are described as fortress cities. Which one of these groups are you betting on for victory? So you've got the church camp out invading North Korea. Now, there is no chance that the church camp out is going to defeat this country. There is no chance. There is no possible way. But that's because God decided 
Og, king of Bashan, and Sihon, king of the Amorites, should not have their country anymore. And he gave the power of his, uh, uh, God gave his people power to defeat these kingdoms. And that's why these are included in this psalm. Because anybody who reads this would say, there's no reason we should have won this battle. They've been camping out for years, for decades. There's no way that this kind of group of people could invade an established kingdom with established defenses. The only way this would have been possible is to recall back and say, then God must have been in it. So the people of Israel can say, we can, we can trust God because not only did he, did he create all that is, not only did he save us out of slavery, but he also defeated all of our enemies to establish us as his people in the promised land. We can trust God because we can remember what he has done. That's what this psalm is for. That's what this psalm was for the people of Israel. Is as they're living their life, they can think back upon everything God has done and say, wait a minute, I think I can trust God. Even though today it seems hard to trust God, I can look back at everything God has done and, and because I have seen God faithful throughout all of time, I can say today, okay, I can trust God still today because I know everything he has done to create the world around us, to save me from my enemies, and to conquer our enemies and establish him, his people. Let's read the last few verses, verses 23, 24, 25, and 26, before we look at a couple of places in the New Testament that echo these same reminders. It is God who remembered us in our lowest state. It is God who rescued us from our foes. It is God who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. So it is this God, the one true God, who creates all that is, saves his people, establishes his people, and then watches over us even in our lowest state. Even in our our frailty and our, our tendency to disregard him and rebellion, even in our willingness to willingly and gladly give ourselves over to slavery to many enemies, it is he who rescues us and gives us food. We should express our gratitude to God. His love endures forever. So is this still happening today? Should we have the same thing in our lives today? Yes, absolutely. I want to show you three or four different ways in the New Testament that we're reminded to do this very same thing today that the people of Israel did in Psalm 136. So I want, I want you to think a little bit about the Old Testament. Have you read it before? Or at least seen the movie? I don't know. So given the fact that God created the universe and the world and he uh, saved his people from slavery and then he established his people, his kingdom, we can safely assume, right? That his people then, because of God's fantastic faithfulness, they must have throughout all of their history, followed God so closely. And they, they must have, I mean, this is pretty incredible what God, and so certainly they followed God with gratitude and thanks their whole, whole life. Is this true? Have you read the Old Testament? It's a nonstop record of people rejecting God's kindness, isn't it? It's a nonstop story of God being nicer than he ought to have been and people being more rebellious than they should have been. That's what it is. We see how the Old in the Old Testament people failed to trust and worship God. And what that should do is, is serve as a reminder to us. Because that error, for God to be more uh, kind than he ought to be, to create, save, and establish people, and for those same people to reject him, that error 
is normal. It's not weird. So when we see people doing that in the Old Testament, we said, how could they? Have you ever read your Bible and said that? How could they? But what we should recognize is that that tendency for people to reject God even in his kindness is a normal thing. That's what people do. Is God is nice to us, and then we tend to sort of disregard it. We tend to sort of set it aside. It is a normal error for people to receive God's kindness and then turn away from him. What we ought to do, knowing that, is we should look at what God does for us through Jesus, recognize how much he has shown his love to us in the same way he did in the Old Testament, by creating, saving, and establishing us through the work of Christ, and allow that to do the same thing in our heart, is move us to gratitude that we would avoid that error, that even, even though Christ has been so great to us, we want to avoid that error of turning aside from the greatness of the work he has done. We can trust God because of what he has done, and now because of what Jesus has done for us, we can trust God when we recognize what he's doing in our lives right now. I want to read a couple of sermons, if you don't mind. Now, thankfully, New Testament sermons are much shorter than mine. So I want to start in Acts chapter 17 as we look at God's work today to create and how that can help us in our faith today. This is the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens. Maybe you've heard of it. He's preaching to some non-believers who are not Jewish. Let me read it. This is uh, Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 21. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is he talking about there? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is the culmination of all of God's creation. There has not been an event in created history that is greater than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus, fully God, fully man, raised from the dead. And what Paul is saying here by the power of the Holy Spirit is this man at the culmination of created history has raised from the dead. So now, therefore, he will stand in judgment. 
All that has been made is being remade in Christ himself. Since Jesus has been raised, we recognize something important is happening. Because God created and then we sinned. What happened to creation when we sinned? We ruined it. Now we have weeds. And I believe that's the worst possible thing that could happen is we have weeds. So now when you're out weeding, I just mutter under my breath at Adam. <laughs> what were you thinking? Now we have to weed in the spring. And so creation now, even Jesus testified, creation now groans under the weight of the curse that sin brought upon it. But Jesus has been raised. So what does that mean for creation? All things are going to be raised and made new. He is going to remake creation. All things are going to be renewed in creation. We can trust God because he created. But now, having a risen Savior, what can we trust God is doing today? He is going to remake things so that they are all new. Can we trust God that he made everything? Yes. How do you know? You're standing on it. You say, well, it might have happened by chance. Are you serious? That makes no sense. That makes no sense. When I walk into my kitchen and every cupboard is open. You ever had this happen? Every cupboard is open. I don't say, well, by chance, all the cupboards are open. No, what do I say? Somebody's been here. And they're lucky they're not right now. Because we'd have a conversation about proper cupboard usage. If you're not actively engaged in the contents of the cupboard, what are the doors supposed to be? Closed. This is not complicated. If you don't take anything away from this sermon, that should be something you take away from this sermon. <laughs> Write it down. If you're not actively engaged in the contents of this cupboard, print that out. Put it on the inside of your cupboards, and then, then you close it. You walk away. But no, I'm, I'm coming right back. No, no, no. Stop it. <laughs> I don't know why we're on this topic, but it, the moment you leave that open, somebody is going to come around that corner, and they are going to take a facer on that cupboard door, and now you have caused them to sin. <laughs> They're going to say something. And it's not going to be say anyway. How did we end up on that, Mark? I'm sorry about that. Okay. Walk in there. How do we know the cupboard's up? Somebody's been here. So we walk on the planet Earth, and there's a million different kinds of trees, there's a million different kinds of bugs, there's a million different kinds of people. Uh, it must have just happened. Are you kidding me? That doesn't make any sense. No reasonable person would assume this is true. Somebody did this. There is God who created, and since there is a risen Savior, we can trust He is going to make all things new. He's going to make all things new. What's the error we tend to make? The error is we have seen what God is doing, and we have seen what God has done in the past, and our error is we want to, we want to diverge from what God is up to. So where do, when we don't want to really trust that God is making all things do. Where does that error show up in our lives today? Here's where that error shows up. When we would really, what we really want is not a new creation. We just want a slightly improved version of the broken creation. That's what we would really like. That's what we're living for. I'm not living for new creation. I'm living for a slightly improved version of this broken creation. What would you say in your Old Testament? If the Israelites decided, you know what, we don't need the promised land, we just need a better campground. We need full hookups. If we had full hookups in the wilderness, you know what, we could make this work. Would, would that make any sense? But that's how we're living. 
you know what? Everything would be finally okay if this world was just slightly better. And Jesus says, I was raised from the dead not to give you a slightly improved version of ruined. I am going to make all things new. Do you want to invest your life in a slightly better version of this? I don't. It's not worth it. But do you want to invest your life in being a part of a kingdom that will be eternal and will be glorious? Sign me up. And I hope you want to be a part of that. But what we can do is we can get off the hobby horse of being a, seeing this particular place a slightly better. If only politics were a little bit better. And if only the checker at the grocery store was a little bit more attentive. And we just wish this life was a little bit better. And we cry out to God, Lord, it hurts to live here. Have you noticed it hurts to be on planet Earth? I'm 50, so this happens. I'm only in pain when I'm awake. Again, think of the people in the wilderness. They woke up and they walked out the door and they said, it's sandy again. They said, Lord, this would be fine if there wasn't so much sand. And did, did God want to remove the sand? No, what do you want to do? Give them a promised land. He wanted them to have a vision that was bigger and grander than a, a slightly better version of broken. And that's what Paul is calling us to do. He says about Jesus at the end of his sermon, he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When we look at the resurrection, we don't look at how does God make wilderness better. When we look at the resurrection, we say we will see him one day. That's what we say there. That's what Paul is calling us to do. I can trust God because he created, and I can trust God because he raised Jesus from the dead. So therefore, my vision doesn't look to next week. That's too short-sighted. What does it look to? Recreation. And how do I participate in that in the most profound way? It's by living a life of faith today. And that's how he calls it. He says, don't live the error. Don't make the mistake of failing to trust God by simply hoping today would be a little better. But instead, live today knowing eternity will be glorious. Let's keep going. Let's look at another sermon in Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 35. This is a sermon. I've got two sections from a sermon by Stephen that ends like I anticipate one of my sermons ending one day. <laughs> if, you don't know how, if you don't get that joke, read to the end. End of chapter 7. Here's what Stephen says about our Savior. Moses, who the people of Israel rejected, saying this about him, who made you, that is Moses, a ruler and judge? This man, Moses, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man, still, still talking about Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So we can trust God because he saved his people from Egypt. And we can trust God because he is saving us through Christ. And what Stephen wants us to understand is the prophet that Moses anticipated. He predicted this prophet at the end of Deuteronomy. The prophet that Moses anticipated is Christ himself, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is the prophet that Moses predicted. He said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses said. What's a prophet like Moses? 
A prophet who will show up and save you from your slavery. A prophet who will save you from your sin. A prophet who will pass you through the Red Sea and take you into the what? Own it. What is it? Take you into the? You missed it. Where does he take you? Wilderness. Wilderness. See, this is why we get irritated with Jesus. Same reason people got irritated with Moses. Moses saved them into the? They were in the, they were in the, they were in the wilderness five minutes. What did they say? We're thirsty. You must have saved us to, to kill us. Have you ever prayed that prayer to God? God, why would you save me if you would do this to me? Certainly you've prayed that prayer. If you haven't, me either. <laughs> God saves us into the wilderness. We want to be saved into heaven. He saves us into the world. So we have to be, we have to be careful with our Savior not to make the same mistake that the people of Israel made. They wanted to reject their Redeemer because he saved them into something they didn't want. They wanted to be saved from Egypt into something else. And he didn't do that. He saved them from Egypt into the wilderness. He gave them the privilege of discovering what it is like to live every single day trusting that God has to show up again today or I will die. And nobody wants to live like that. And God says, that's the way I made you to live. Look back at Genesis 1 when God made the Garden of Eden. What, did he, what was he saying there? I want you to live every day taking food from my hand and enjoying my provision for all of time. And so what did they do? The first chance they got, looked for a way to get food without having to take it from God's hand. And in the wilderness, we get the joy of seeing what it's like to live every day and say, if God doesn't show up today, I'm toast. And what do you and I do just like the people of Israel did? We want to figure out how to live every single day that everything's fine. And we're not in the wilderness. We need to be careful not to make the same mistake uh, Israel made and reject our Redeemer because Jesus is the prophet Moses predicted and he calls us out of slavery and to sin into the wilderness because we're not home yet. If you thought we were in heaven, Medford's nice, Rogue Valley's nice. It's not that nice. You ever driven Highway 62 on a Saturday afternoon? We are not in heaven. Why don't you people stay home when I got to go to Hobby Lobby or whatever it is out there? And when things are wilderness-y, we freak out. Wait a second, I thought God was saving me into the promised land. He saved you into the wilderness, but it's coming, isn't it? We look forward to a city. So this is the time where we live by faith. We recognize what God has done. He saved Israel from Egypt. We recognize what he is doing for us today. He is saving us from our sin, making us more like Jesus every single day in the wilderness. And one day he will save us into glory. But that day is coming. Okay, final part of this sermon, Acts chapter 7. Look down at verse 44. Jesus, our conqueror, establishes us as his people. Acts 7, beginning in verse 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. He's talking about the tabernacle there. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it with them, uh, with Joshua, when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. 
Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make these things? Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised of heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. If you want to see how it ends, read the next verse while I'm talking. Jesus is our conqueror. He is the one who has saved us from our enemies. And that's what he shows here. It is God who led his people into the promised land and conquered all of the enemies. And God had sent countless helpers and prophets to his people, calling them to fidelity to the covenant, calling them to trust God according to what he had called them to do. And he said, be faithful to God. Be faithful to his promises. Be faithful to his commands as an act of worship because he saved you from slavery. And all of those prophets, they murdered and they killed and they set aside. They rejected all of those who would come to them and say, be faithful to God. Think of uh, Jeremiah and, and think of Isaiah. Think of Elisha who fled for his life. Think of Elijah. All of these prophets that were rejected by people and all these prophets were doing is say, God has saved you. God has conquered for you. And now he wants to establish you. So therefore, live as God's people established. And the error we make is what he says about the people of Israel in his day. Stephen he says, as your fathers did, so do you. It's easy for us to say, boy, we are glad we are not like those people Stephen was talking to. But then we miss the point of the passage. As our fathers did, so do we. So we can ask ourselves this question about our relationship with God. It's simply this. Do I want something other than Jesus from God? If you want something other than Jesus from God... You don't want God. If you're looking for something else from Jesus besides a relationship with God, you don't actually want a relationship with God. Because the means by which God has saved you is his Passover lamb, Jesus. And the means by which he has conquered all of your enemies is our great conqueror, Christ, who has defeated our enemy, Satan at the cross and defeated our enemy death at the open tomb. And if you want something other than Jesus as a believer who has by his spirit intended to make his primary goal in your life making you more like him, then you don't want God. Jesus' purpose for your life is to redeem you from your sin, defeat your enemies, sin, Satan, and death, and make you more like him. And we want God to save us from a parking spot really far from the door. We want God to save us from people who are annoying. We want God to save us from people who do politics different than we do. We want God to save us from family that's annoying. 
I don't know what you want to be saved from, and I don't know who you want to save you, but if you want a relationship with God, the only way to do that is through his son, Jesus. And if you don't want Jesus, you want a relationship with somebody or something, but it's not God. And that's what Psalm 136 was telling the people of Israel, because they forgot it over and over and over again. And the New Testament writers tell us the same thing over and over again. Don't forget your Savior. Who is that? Jesus. Don't forget what he saved you from. Satan, sin, and death. Don't forget what he has saved you to. Be more like him in the wilderness because one day in glory we will be like him. But we're not home yet. Okay, last message. No, I'm serious. What, should we, what then should we do? I think we got a great picture of this from a lady in the New Testament, Luke chapter 1. Her name was Mary. Still, well, her name is Mary. You may have heard of her. You say, well, which one? There's lots of Marys in the Bible. Mary, who was blessed by God to carry Christ, give birth to Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 46, we have Mary's song. We call it the Magnificat because we have a tendency of making really simple, straightforward things complicated and smart sounding. So we've got a very basic song written very, by a very young woman and we give it a Latin name. Isn't that funny? Here we go. Mary said this. Listen to Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and, his, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and, and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty-handed. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So here's Mary doing Psalm 136 for us. I remember what God has done. He promised Abraham that he would bless all generations. And so now the son of God himself is going to be born by God's grace through me, Mary is saying. And so people will rise up and call me blessed. So therefore, from this moment on, Mary's life was so amazing, wasn't it? What are some of the great things Mary got to endure? What happened to Joseph? I don't know. Somebody say he died? I don't know. It doesn't say. Let's pray he's dead. Well, he is now. I mean, that sounds terrible. Wouldn't it be better he's dead than he abandoned the family? Parenting is hard. Agreed? Parenting the Messiah? Oh, my lands. Are you kidding me? I don't even want to try. I mean, the kid actually is always right. I mean, could you imagine? Jesus, you're right. It's my bad again. Husband, who knows what? What about her other kids? Her other kids were great, weren't they? She knows from the beginning that her son is the Messiah. How do other kids do? Even as adults, we were told in the Gospels, they didn't believe. They didn't believe till later. So here is, here is the woman raising the Messiah by God's grace, and her other kids are non-believers. That's fun. What's the worst thing she had to do? 
She, had, she was standing at the crucifixion. Could you imagine? I mean, so while she knew, he knew he would raise from the dead. Please, that would be terrible. And the angel predicted, your heart will be pierced. Could you, do you think Mary, during any of those times, said, God, I didn't know it was going to be like, I didn't know it was going to be like this. So what, what we discover from Mary, in the wilderness, she is worshiping God in anticipation of glory. That's what the Magnificat is. She says, I am blessed. Does, it, does she feel blessed every day? Of course not. Of course she doesn't. But her faith, she says, I know what God did because I don't know what Abraham was promised. And I know what God is doing now because Jesus is alive. So therefore, in the wilderness, I'm going to worship God whom I can trust, knowing what's coming. So we can trust God because of what he has done. And we can trust God because of what he is doing today. He is risen and he has saved us from our sin. And we can worship him even in the wilderness, knowing what's coming because we can trust him. That's what Psalm 136 calls us to do. A couple of ideas and then we'll close. I want you to think about this a little bit. What has God done for you in the past? Do you think about that every now and then? I hope you do. This is a good practice to do when, when discouragement and doubts come creeping in. Sit down and take inventory. Either write it down or just think through it. What, is, what has God done th for you in the past? One author has a great idea. If you spend time praying and start writing down those prayer requests so that over the course of time you can make note of when they're answered because we're so forgetful. And start remember, I remember when, when God answered that prayer. And I, I, you can look at the way people have influenced your life by God's grace to lead you closer to God. Maybe you can think to that time when somebody led you to the Lord. And you can say, man, my life was going this way. And God intervened and he drew me out of destruction into relationship with him. What has God done for you in the past? And, and can you remind yourself of those great things as a way of building up? your own faith by His grace. Maybe as a believer, you can look at things in your past that were sinful habits that are no longer sinful habits. Can you look over the course of your life and say, things I struggle with as a younger person, by God's grace, I struggle less with. And you can admit, God has changed me. One of the ways you can encourage people is if you know somebody well, is you can encourage them with that. Say, you know what? I really see something God is doing in your life. You, I used to see this in you, and now I, I see something different. Something's happening, and I'm, I'm encouraged by it. See how you can encourage somebody's faith by doing that? You can even do that if that person is your spouse. Okay, it got quiet there. Say, so you know what? I love what God is doing in your life. As married couples, sometimes we get really good at saying, you know what I would really love for God to do in your life? <laughs> and there might be a place for that. I would suggest making that a prayer card. But what an encouragement. Say, man, you know what? Here's what we used to look like together, and here's what we look like now, and I think God did something. It's worth celebrating together. One last thing on this topic. Maybe because you, I'm not sure what God has done for your life, but think about that. This is the way I like to think about it. Imagine where your life would be today if, if Christ hadn't intervened. Where would you be? Where do you think you would be? And be honest. You know where your life was headed. You know what you, know what you do when you disregard Jesus. And where would your life be today 
if left to your own devices. So I, I don't know that I even like to think about that. But, but the reason that is important to do, because what does that mean? That's what God has saved us from. Isn't he a good God? If left to our own devices, we'd be, we'd be there. And he didn't let us go there. He, he, by his grace, drew us to here. And now we have a life, even in the wilderness, that we would, with Mary, call what? Blessed. What has God done for us in the past? Now, think about today. What in your life, and again, just think about this honestly, that you would say, what is, what is God working on in your life right now? Think about what the, the Bible has communicated to you in your reading. Think about the circumstances God is taking you through. And if you had to just boil it down, and maybe you've been resistant to it, and you don't even want to think about it, but you had to just be honest and say, God is really, really on this particular area of my area of my life, whether it be an area of sin or an area of disobedience or an area he's calling you to, to be obedient. What do you think God is working on in your life right now? And the question we ought to ask ourselves is, in that moment, we say, okay, I know what God is doing here. Are you going to resist him or are you going to finally just say, you know what, you're right, I'm wrong? Because that's what Israel did all the way through the wilderness. Why am I so thirsty? Why am I so hungry? Why do we have to camp? And then when God is working on us, one of the things we can do is we can say, okay, your will, not mine, God. I see what you're up to, and I'm going to yield this to you. This sinful habit that I'm sort of pretending isn't as bad as that. I'm, you know what? No, that's yours, God. I'm saying no to that. Give me strength to say no. Or this area of my life that I ought to be engaging in, whether it be reading the Bible or, or prayer or seeking to serve the Lord by serving others in ministry in some way, I've been resisting this and pretending like that doesn't have to be a part of my life. Lord, I'm going to give, you, give that to you because I want to see what you're doing today. I know what you've done before. What, what has God up to you in life today? Finally, this, let's think about our future. God has handled our past. God is currently power, acting powerfully in our present. And then God has for us a future. The, the scripture tells us one day every single one of us is, is going to stand before God in judgment. And I'm just going to, I don't know how to say this nice, so I'll just tell you. Make that day a good day. Jesus created the world. Jesus came to save every person in the world but he gives you the opportunity to accept him or reject him. And to reject him today is to accept his judgment one day. And now is the time, if you don't have a relationship with God, to say, you know what, I see what he's done. I see what he's doing. I'm going to trust Jesus today so that on that day, I'm with him. So we can trust him for our salvation, for our forgiveness to finally yield to him and say, Lord, it's not my life, it's yours. And I recognize I violated all of your purposes and plans. And now I want to get off of the road of my life and instead trust you to save me and give me a new life. We can trust God. Remember what he has done and remember what he is doing. I have one last thing I wanted to mention. This is, I just added this uh, this morning. So this is a little out of place. Um, this is a pet peeve of mine. I don't, I don't know if I mentioned this before. You, know, you really ought to know your Bible. Uh, have I mentioned this before? Once or twice? Okay. Why? So here, um, this is tying back into our introduction with Calvin's dad. There are a lot of Calvin's dads who are Bible teachers. They're making it up as they go. 
They're just making, how do I know if God is working in my life? Oh, you're rich. How do I know God's working in my life? He takes away all your illnesses. How do I know God is working in my life? You get promoted at work, whatever kind of malarkey it, it might be. How do you know if somebody is teaching you malarkey? How do you know if I'm teaching you malarkey? Do you know what malarkey is? Is that a common word today? I, I mentioned the red light special. Obviously, I'm old. How do you know if somebody is teaching you garbage? Well, you email your pastor. That's <laughs> yeah, fine. I'm happy to answer any questions, certainly, but you should email Seth um, or Jeff. They, they're smarter. Because you've read your Bible. This shouldn't be complicated. If you hear garbage, if you hear me saying something, if you come up to me with an open Bible and say, hey, Yahoo, you're an idiot, I'm going to celebrate that. If I'm wrong, I'm happy to say it because the Bible is the Bible. The way in which we avoid people who are making it up as they go to serve their own purposes, we got to know our Bible. And a time is coming, Jesus tells us at the end of the book of Matthew, when the elect might even be deceived if possible. The only way during that time of great deception to avoid these yahoos is to know our Bible front and back. And when do you start learning your Bible? Right now, just start today. This is how we know what God has done. The only way to know what God has done is to be people of the Word. The only way to know what God is up to in my life right now is to be people of the Word. The only way to know what God is up to next, next is what? People of the Word. We got 16 copies of the Bible on our shelves and 37 of them in our phones. Just read one of them. All right, that's all I got on that. I don't know. How did you get in? Todd told me to say that. <laughs> God, we thank you for the grace you have given us. We thank you for Psalm 136 and the reminder that we can trust you. We can trust you because of what you have done. You have saved us from slavery to sin and death. God, we can, we can trust you for what you're up to now, that you have called us out of slavery, but we live our lives right now in the wilderness. And it's hard, and it's a life of faith. But God, each of us who have called on your name know that you are actively working on our hearts to make us more like Jesus. And because we have seen what you've done before and what you're up to now, we can trust you for our future. So Lord, in those moments of darkness and doubt and difficulty and suffering, we pray that by your Spirit, you would give us the privilege of trusting you. And God, for those who are still enslaved to their sin, I pray in these moments they would finally reach out to Jesus for salvation through faith. Trusting that what he did on the cross for, for their sin is enough. And they can receive forgiveness by trusting him. Lord, we can't wait till you return, but until you do, Lord, make us faithful till then. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up as we close with a song?